The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. Riddle me this. What can you cast that is not any spell? What is a show that is nothing but tell? We comment on superhero movies of fame, and like the ones in today's film, this riddle is lame. The answer is Totally Super. Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And for those familiar with uh, the Trek Off podcast, occasionally I say who our sponsors are tonight. And tonight I would like to be proudly here to say that this show has been being sponsored by Vodka and Tonic. Um, Vodka and Tonic, the drink that you have three to four shots of before doing a show when you have to talk about Batman Forever. Vodka and Tonic, it's what makes things bearable. And, there, that's uh, my commercial. Yeah, and my, and my sponsor is Coke Zero uh, because that's what was in the fridge. Yeah, sorry. Well, guys, tonight uh, I have not done a tipsy show. I'm not drunk yet, but an hour from now when we finish, I will be done with this drink and I will maybe enjoy this a little more. I think it's not fair. Um, as I said last episode, when I walked out of this movie in 1995, I had a friend. Uh, I don't know how many of you are Mormon or have Mormon friends, but often uh, you will have um, young men at the age of 19 in the Mormon religion who go away for two years on a mission. And my friend Van, who I mentioned in the last uh, in the last podcast, uh, was Mormon, and he had gone away to uh, to college at um, at BYU for a year, and he had come back for the summer, and we'd hung out a little bit. And he did not go see this movie, which came out uh, in like in the middle of the summer of 1995, which is, of course, when we were 19. It was the year after I graduated from high school. And we went I went out to lunch with him right before he was leaving to go to the missionary training center for for his church. And I had just seen this. And the last words I said to him, and these are really the last words that we spoke as friends. I have not seen this person in person since this day. As I said, by the way, before we go, because we're like walking away. I said, oh, yeah, by the way, by the way, if you get a chance before you go on your mission, go check out Batman Forever. It is awesome. And it's so much better than the ones we saw before. Remember, Van's the one I saw Batman Returns with earlier. Batman Returns, which has become one of my favorite superhero movies ever made. And the person I saw it with, the last real words I spoke to him is, go see Batman Forever. It's so much better. It's no no wonder that we are not longer friends. Oh, guys. Um, Batman Forever. Uh, had you seen it before now, Arthur? Um, I had, although I have literally zero recollection of when I of when that was. Probably in 1995. I, I probably on sure. June, the weekend of June 9th, 1995. This movie came out June 9th, 1995. Uh, in the middle of what was? Uh, how old were you in 1995? Uh, I don't know, 16. 16. So you're in high school at this point, and up to this point, all the other ones before you were a child. I dare say, and now you are. Now you're full in in adolescence, young adulthood. Um, do you remember this movie appealing to you, not appealing to you? Was it just sort of meh? Was it just another movie from 1995? Did, it was did, just another did, movie. Did like like Justin, Justin, when I'm telling you that I have literally zero recollection of any time around watching this film or what was going on or my thoughts on this film, what I'm telling you is that I have literally zero recollection of that. <laughs> 
If you want to ask me about what my thoughts are watching this film last night, oh, I will happily tell you all sorts of thoughts, which are fresh in my memory. But if you're asking me what I was doing in 1995, in 1995, I was desperately trying to figure out my first relationship with a girl, Justin. That's all I remember about 1995. Bare naked with a girl. Um... (laughs) Uh, yeah, um, 19 years old is a weird time. I've talked about on the show and on the other show, uh, how fraught emotionally I was at that point. I was coming off a super bad breakup. I talked about this in the crow a lot, actually, our crow one, um, super bad breakup came home after a highly unsuccessful year of college to basically live in my friend's basement, uh, because that was the only place available to me at the time to live. And I got back into comics, uh, which I had sort of drifted out of by the end of high school, very briefly just for this summer. But I was still a Marvel guy. That being said, there wasn't a lot of option in terms of superhero anything to go on. The X-Men TV show was still on the air. And so I could watch that and did occasionally. But I still had this bias against watching a cartoon. Um, Batman Returns had been out on VHS enough that I had watched it a lot. I had run a a hole in that tape. I had watched it so much. And outside of that, there's not a lot going on. Batman is it. And of course he is. He's incredible. Um, He has still done massive business. And he's inspired, in the meantime, lots of knockoffs. Uh, You've had the Flash TV show. You've had uh, things like the, The Punisher with Dolph Lundgren has come out. Uh, You've had other attempts at stuff, but nothing has really hit like Batman. He was, he was, this was the MCU of the time. This was the, the tried and true things that you could count on. So in the summer of 95, this was the thing to go to. Um, I'm looking real quick and looking at the movies of the summer of 95. We've done this before and I'm going to keep doing this as much as I can when I feel that's relevant. Here are the movies that's competing uh, the, here, the, here are the movies that are competing uh, with uh, the summer of '95. Um, uh, this is this, these are listing things from '94, which I don't understand. You've got uh, Braveheart, uh, Casper, uh, Congo, um, Batman Forever, of course. Um, Pocahontas is coming out. Uh, Judge Dread, Apollo 13, which was, of course, huge, Nine Months, um, Clueless, Waterworld, Babe. So what I'm seeing here, Mortal Kombat. Okay, there's a couple um, of good films in there, but I'm thinking back to the, uh, you know, when you were reading out the list of films that came out when the original Batman came out that same summer, it yeah. was nothing but like a who's who of some of the best films of that decade. Meanwhile, it's with the exception of a few of uh, a few really good ones like, uh, you know, like Babe and Apollo 13 and Braveheart and the rest of them I'm like oh wow this was a this was a real clunker of a summer yeah it really was um it's I mean Braveheart of course stands out but Braveheart was not really on my radar at the time at age 19 I wanted to see things what this is the summer of listing everything that I just listed and I guess this movie can be listed among it this was the summer of disappointments. Think of all these films that they thought were going to be huge. Braveheart, it's Mel Gibson. It was much bigger than they thought. But Casper, it's a CG version of Casper with Christina Ricci. They think that's going to be huge. Congo was supposed to be a giant hit, and it wasn't. This movie had its own problems. 
it was a giant hit. Pocahontas was a considered at the time to kind of be a failure. Oh yeah, no, Pocahontas of, was the um, Pocahontas was the film that broke the Disney streak of really really solid films of animated. Yeah, films, um, uh, Stallone, Stallone tries to do Judge, Judge Dredd again. It's a big failure. Apollo thirteen is good, but but again, you're looking at PG thirteen drama. Um, as much as it's it's effects driven, it's a it's pretty much a drama. Um, Clueless is an underdog hit. Waterworld is a, is a giant disappointment again. Another film that broke things. Babe was not supposed to be huge, but ended up being huge. Mortal Kombat was you know it it was its own thing. Um, so it's not it's not only um, it's not only how do I put this? It's not only a, a summer where it didn't have a lot of hits, but there are a lot of disappointments within that summer. Things that were supposed to pop and didn't. And if you look at the summer of 94, which came before, which we talked about when we did The Crow, the summer of 94, which had Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction and The Crow, and you know what I mean? Like it was, 94 was a, a Shawshank Redemption. It was this enormous summer. Um, this is a disappointing summer, and the center of it is the tentpole of the summer, Batman Forever. Um, we can't talk about Batman Forever without talking, I guess, about the the expulsion of uh, of Tim Burton. We talked in the last film about the concept of, of films being toyetic and whether or not a film could inspire toys and the fact that Batman Returns required toys to be recalled. Now, I don't know if it was Warner Brothers or if it was Tim Burton. There are multiple stories that have gone along that said, one that said that Tim Burton, after the experience on Batman, Batman Returns, decided that he never wanted to do another sequel and it's worth noting he's done films that have had sequels but he has not done another sequel since Batman Returns. It's also worth noting that there's a rumor that he walked in to Warner Brothers with a script for Batman Forever and or for Batman 3 and Warner Brothers was like thank you but no thanks this is not the way that we want to go. It's worth noting that the film opens with the title A Tim Burton Production and I don't think that he had anything to do with this film although when we get to next week we can maybe feel a difference when Tim Burton is not available. We also can't talk about this film without talking about the expulsion of Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton decided not to come back. My understanding is that had something to do with the that, that he was offered the film and he said no and the reason why is because this film had even more villains more more focus on the villains in the original script although I think when we get to the end I think I'm going to say this has more Batman and more Bruce Wayne than the last film did but I think he had um, a real sense that he was getting buried in the film so we have a film with a new Batman a new director a new look and yet it's supposed to be a sequel to Batman Returns. And that's where we find ourselves on June 19th, 1995. I'll give you the tail of the tape and then it's your turn to take it away with the plot. The budget for this film is a staggering, for this, for this, for 1995, a staggering $100 million, which is a ton of money for the time. It's a ton of money now, but for the time, it's enormous. And the box office came back with $336 million. You generally say it needs to make twice its budget. So it made a hefty $100 million for Warner Brothers. So not bad, enough to warrant a sequel. Um, came with some criticism, which we'll talk about. But, sir, I have given you all of the data that I can give you. I've talked your ear off. Sir, Arthur, what is what is the plot All right, my of turn. Batman Forever? Uh, so, Batman Forever. 
Prologue. We open on the Bank of Gotham, under attack by one Harvey Dent, aka Two-Face, and his goons. The bat signal is lit, and we see an epic and cool putting on the bat uniform sequence. Batman then arrives on the scene, and after some high-flying heroics, defeats Two-Face, who escapes. It is apparent that Gotham has long since accepted that Batman is now a part of the city, and supervillains still abound. Act 1. We meet Chase Meridian, a psychologist that the Gotham PD brought in as a consultant to analyze Two-Face, though it's clear she's far more interested in analyzing the Batman, in more ways than one, if you know what I mean. At Wayne Enterprises, we also met Edward... (laughs) Yes, yes, you did know what I meant. At Wayne Enterprises, we also met Edward Nigma, a social recluse with a dream of beaming TV signals directly into the viewer's brain. He makes his pitch to his idol, Bruce Wayne, but is crestfallen when Wayne shoots his idea down. That night, the bat signal is lit again, but when Batman arrives, it is not Commissioner Gordon waiting for him, but rather Chase Meridian, who wanted to see him in the flesh, so to speak. Sparks fly. Meanwhile, at Wayne Enterprises, Edward Nigma works late into the night to complete his project, forcibly enlisting his supervisor's aid. He soon discovers that not only does his box, as he calls it, beam signals into the supervisor's brain, it also gives Edward the ability to suck up his brain waves and gain IQ. Thrilled with this breakthrough, Edward murderizes his supervisor and starts to concoct his fiendish plan. Act 2. Edward Nigma dubs himself the Riddler and starts sending cryptic riddles to Bruce Wayne. Bruce meets Chase Meridian in person, and the two hit it off, instantly setting up a strange love triangle between Chase, Bruce, and Batman. They attend the circus together, where a fantastic trapeze act, the Flying Graysons, are performing. But Two-Face storms the big top and threatens to blow up everyone inside if Batman doesn't show himself. The Grayson family manages to get the bomb out of the tent and save everyone, but Two-Face kills all of them except for the young Dick Grayson. Bruce offers to take the newly orphaned Grayson in himself. The Riddler reveals himself to Two-Face, and the two supervillains decide to team up to humiliate and destroy the Batman. Act 3. After some initial reluctance, Dick Grayson settles in at Wayne Manor. It is not long, however, before his curiosity leads him to discover that Batman is in fact Bruce Wayne, and vice versa. He steals the Batmobile for a joyride, and gets a taste for heroics when he saves a girl from a street gang. Bruce refuses to let him be his partner, though, since he doesn't want the young man to go down the same path of revenge that he did. Bruce and Chase attend a gala event celebrating Edward Nigma's box, which has become so popular it's in every home in Gotham. Nigma uses his box to read Bruce's mind and discovers his superheroic secret, just as Two-Face storms the gala. In a fiendish plot, Two-Face ends up burying Batman under a ton of rubble, but at the last minute, Grayson shows up to rescue him. Act 4. Bruce and Grayson continue to argue about Grayson's desire to kill Two-Face and become Batman's sidekick. And, although she initially thought she was more attracted to Batman, Chase decides that she is in love with Bruce instead, which really he is just fine with. However, as they celebrate their love at Wayne Manor, Two-Face and the Riddler arrive. They blow up the Batcave, and capture Chase. Bruce realizes that in order to defeat the Riddler and Two-Face, he will need help, and agrees to let Grayson be his sidekick. Thus, Robin is born. They then use the clues and the riddles that Riddler has been sending to come up with the name Mr. E, or Mystery, which is another word for Enigma, or Edward Nigma. It is in this way that they determine the Riddler's true identity. Truly, a bout of riddle writing to rival J.R.R. Tolkien. Or at the very least, the Adam West Batman film, which 
also had such inane leaps of logic as, this crime took place on the ocean or at sea. Sea for Catwoman. But I digress. Act 5. Batman and Robin storm Nygma's fortress. Grayson has the chance to kill Two-Face, but chooses to take the higher road and is promptly captured for his trouble. When faced with the choice of saving his partner Grayson or his true love, Meridian, Batman opts instead to cut the Gordian knot and attack Riddler directly. Riddler's machine goes haywire, playing havoc with his brain and driving him mad. Two-Face makes a final attempt to kill the two heroes, but Batman hurls a fistful of Two-Face's own lucky coins at him, causing him to lose his balance and fall to his death. Riddler is sent to Arkham Asylum, where Meridian checks in on him to make sure he's not going to tell anyone who Batman is. She and Bruce have a lovely moment, and she tells him not to work too late. We close on an image of the bat symbol, with the silhouettes of the caped crusader and the boy Wonder running towards the camera. Fiend. Oh boy. Okay, so, so all right, now I, I've just got to just dive in here because clearly, those of you listening, both both with the uh, you know with the intro to this podcast as well as my own commentary and the plot here, let's talk about riddles in film, um, please. And I think this was the so the whole time I'm watching this movie. I'm trying to decide, okay, who is this film made for? Like, what is the targeted age group? Um, because it certainly is a different targeted age group than Batman Returns is. And at first I was thinking, oh, okay, it's, you know, it's targeted for, you know, people my age when I was watching it, I guess, you know, high schoolers or middle, you know, things like that. But really, I think it's because of the way the riddles were done that I was like, you know, this might have been meant for a younger audience. Um, either that or it's, they certainly tried to, they, they went for the lowest common denominator with these riddles. And I understand that is a choice that when you're dealing with a villain like the Riddler, the choice to, okay, we have to have riddles in the film, obviously. How tricky do we need to make them? I can understand that that's, you know, there's a little, you know, give and take with that. You don't not want to necessarily leave any of your audience behind, um... But, uh, yeah, the the whole Mr. E or mystery or enigma thing by the end, it was... I'm sure if I was nine, I would have been like, oh, cool, look what they did. But, uh, yeah, this time around, there was some serious eye-rolling there. Yeah, no, the riddles are terrible. The riddles are... And it's worth noting, right, that, that how was this film marketed? It was the Batman symbol with a big question mark around it. Yeah. Right? So the idea was that the riddles are going to be the thing that and, gets you. And also... The riddles the, uh, are all super, super... Yeah, sorry, I'm Please. ranting on this, but the uh, so the thing is there you're, there's like four or five riddles throughout the throughout the film, you know, where one the first answer is a clock, and then you know a chess pawn, and then vowels. But here's the kicker: the solutions to all of the riddles individually had literally nothing to do with them figuring out that it was Edward Nigma who was the riddler. Like the idea of oh, all five of these riddles that we've got, um, they've co- you know if we look at it from a meta. Uh, from a meta perspective and combine all five riddles that tells us you know the true answer that's actually not a halfway bad idea but only if you still find a way to incorporate all of the answers that you've uh all of the answers from the other riddles, if that makes any sense. It's like, it just seems like a whole lot of wasted effort, both on the villain's part and on the audience's part, in trying to, you know, enjoy the riddling. Well, and that's the thing, right? Let's call it, and I'm going to call this out multiple times in this film. Um, this is Batman 66 with a budget. That's what yes. this is. Except the difference um, is in that Batman so 66. If you watch the Riddler on that show, if you watch, if you watch Frank Gorshin on that show, the joke is the riddles are crazy and then Batman's, it's like listening to Lassie tell you that little Timmy's in the well. It's like, like, like Batman just goes, ah, yes. But if you think that, like, 
Like, this is a, a pawn and chess pieces and a clock, and therefore the clock tells the time. The time is designated by the moon. The moon comes from a butt. It must be toilet paper. You yes. know, like, it's just like, <laughs> it's, it makes zero sense. Yeah, but but that's the thing. They know that in the 66 Batman. That's the point. It's totally tongue-in-cheek. In this one, it's like, I don't think they were trying to be tongue-in-cheek. Or if they were, they weren't trying hard enough. Yeah, no, I'm I'm completely with you. Now, let's... I want to give a little credit where it's due before we literally drop a load on this film, um, and we're gonna. Um, this this director, Joel Schumacher, gets so much crap. There is on another podcast called Hollywood Babylon with uh, Kevin Smith. They talk about bad movies, and when they talk about movies, they have this chorus, chorus that comes up at the beginning, like their, their little musical cue, which we should do sometime, um, that lists Michael Bay and Joel Schumacher as like the two worst directors directors ever and it's because of this movie and the movie we're going to do next time batman and robin so i want to throw some stuff out there that may surprise you joel schumacher directed in addition to batman forever and batman and robin what he will forever what will be on his tombstone are batman forever and batman and robin because he is listed as the michael bay of superhero films for that this guy directed ready the lost boys saint elmo's fire Flatliners, Dying Young, Falling Down, The Client, A Time to Kill, Phone Booth, The Phantom of the Opera. He directed all those films. Mm-hmm. Half of those are after, and 8mm, which actually is a, is, is, it's a weird film. It's underrated, I think. Um, but if you look at those films, these are, this guy was, was, is a good, he's directed great films. Yeah, those are some, Flatliners is tight. A Time to Kill is incredible. Um, he's a good director. He had a vision for these films, which did not work. But I'm actually going to say, before we say, oh, he's the, despite the fact that I, you know, that I dump a load on the riddling aspect of it. Um, and while in the end, I think I'm going to end up having preferred Batman Returns to this one. Um, there was a lot about this film that I was like, oh, like this film to me is it's more solid than I thought I was going to find it. I just want to put that out there, but go on. Well, I think that what you're going to find is that this film gets lumped with Batman and Robin because everything good about this film resembles the films before and everything bad about this film resembles the film that is to come. Eh. And and you and you see here in this film the seeds of the seeds of what is going to be done next time. And I think that what happens is that you, like, it's like, okay, we've talked about the Hobbit trilogy and how much we hate the Hobbit trilogy, right? The Hobbit trilogy kind of sucks. People forget how good that first Hobbit movie was. Because the first Hobbit movie was pretty great, actually, for most of it. But we can see the excesses starting to happen in the first film, which then by the time you get to the third Hobbit movie, which is terrible, the first film gets lumped in because it you can feel the excesses starting there. But mm-hmm. people forget how great that first film was. And I think that's what happens a lot to Batman Forever, is that it gets lumped with Batman and Robin because of Schumacher, specifically because of Schumacher, and because of the choices made within this film that are amplified in the next film I think this film I guess that makes sense if Batman and Robin had ne- if Batman and Robin had never been made Batman Forever might be remembered a little more fondly or if Batman and Robin had been made and it was slightly darker or even if Batman and Robin had been made and it was almost exactly like this film in tone then then I don't think this film would get lumped in although there are things to say about this film 
Um, but I want to, I want to, the reason I listed all these things is because I feel like Joel Schumacher really gets crapped on. I feel like he really gets like named as a terrible director. And I want to, you know, as a, as a film goer, I, if I wanted to thank him for nothing else, I want to thank him for falling down, which is one of my favorite, favorite little films from the nineties. Oh, that's a great, Uh, everybody should see falling down. It's spectacular to say nothing of his John Grisham films. Um, it's he's a good director when he wants to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and flawless, by the way, flawless also, and which he wrote is an incredible film with uh, Robert De Niro and uh, oh, I forget his name, the other guy, um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's an incredible film. It's they're all worth seeing. So, so Joel Schumacher, we forgive you. Um, but you know, I came to bury Joel Schumacher, not to praise. Him. <laughs> Batman Forever. I think the other guy we got to talk about um, before we get into anything else uh, is Jim Carrey. Yeah. So let's do it, man. What is your take on Jim Carrey? Because he is a polarizing figure. What do you think? Well, it's, I mean, it's Jim Carrey. This is Jim Carrey at the height of his uh, 90s career and at the height of his Jim Carreyness. Um, I mean, the Riddler is, for all intents and purposes, Ace Ventura as a bad guy in this. Um, I don't really see this as too much of a departure from a lot of his previous comic work. Um, when he was chosen to play the Riddler, I thought, oh, that's actually a pretty good, uh, yeah, I could see that it is definitely possible to take the Riddler in that direction. Um, I'm sure it is also possible to take the Riddler in a much more intellectual direction. You know, I'm sure if you were, if you were making a, another kind of Batman film, a darker Batman film, you could take the Riddler in almost a Moriarty, uh, kind of direction, um, which certainly Jim Carrey does not do. Uh, so I think the, the nature of the Riddler and what is a good nature and what's a bad nature that is the polarizing aspect of it I would say Um, it is very clear what they were trying to do with Jim Carrey in this one and I think he achieved that whether or not that's what you wanted to see in the Riddler that's another thing All right, let me agree with you and disagree with you when you say it's just Ace Ventura coming in I would say he is the Riddler is halfway between Ace Ventura and The Mask uh, which came out um, the year before Mm -hmm. in that there is a version of a Jim Carrey Mary Ace Ventura is the only Jim Carrey movie that is like Ace Ventura, actually. Ace Ventura is just Ace. From the moment you meet him, he's just Ace being Ace. The rest of Jim Carrey's movies, and I mean he has a lot of this particular movie, is he is a downtrodden guy who has a thing happen to him where then he gets super confident and also super manic and then hilarity ensues and then things happen and eventually he he turns into you know he learns his lesson most of the time in this case he's just the bad guy but these movies can be listed as this is the this is the mask this is liar liar yeah this is pretty much what happens to edward nigma here this is me myself and irene this is yes man <laughs> um it is uh it is this the 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 downtrodden guy who has the transformation and then you get to see how he is post-transformation being all crazy and Jim Carrey. Um, I think Jim Carrey is a fine actor, actually. Um, I think that he is spectacular in The Truman Show. I think he's great in uh, Man on the Moon. I've seen him do other stuff. Uh, I love you, Philip Morris. Um, there, there are great things that he does. But this is right. He's at the height of his powers, and you hired him to be Jim Carrey, and he's really good at being Jim Carrey. I want to put it right out there. Yeah. Jim Carrey knows how to do Jim Carrey. Um, and I would say that love him or hate him, I'm going to come straight out and say, without Jim Carrey, this film is a disaster. I think that Jim Carrey is 
is perfect for what this film is trying to do. And and I think that really he lights up the screen every moment that he's on it. And I think that most of the problems I'm going to have with this film are the moments that he's not on the screen. But I am I am entertained. I want to ask you personally, what do you like Jim Carrey movies? Do you like his his brand of comedy? The the I'm trying really hard to make you laugh, but darn it, you can't help yourself. Yeah, it's uh, it depends on my mood. I remember I remember in the '90s loving Jim Carrey uh, stuff. I loved I loved Ace Ventura and The Mask and Liar Liar was a wonderful film with a surprising amount of heart. Um, so yeah, like I I get what you're saying. It's 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 almost sort of a dated form of comedy now. Um, that concept of oh you can you can see me trying to be really funny. Um, that doesn't you don't see that as much anymore. Um, it's almost vaudevillian uh, in what it does. Uh, <laughs> Because there's not, I mean, with the exception of Saturday Night Live, that I mean, back in the '90s, there were like four sketch comedy shows um, on TV, uh, and the art of sketch comedy is sort of, with the exception of Saturday Night Live, where you've got like your, you know, your stock characters and things like that. You don't see that that much. It's much more. I mean, we don't even have laugh tracks anymore. So uh, certainly, in that sense, Jim Carrey, I kind of see him as uh, he harkens back to a sort of bygone comedic era. But man, was he absolutely at the peak of comedy in that era. I think the interesting thing about comedy, I think the reason comedy comes in waves, right, is that the essence of comedy is surprise, is what makes you laugh, is you, you think it's going left and it's going right and whatever, however that works, it produces a physical response on you that makes you, ha ha ha, it's, it works with babies, right? Mm-hmm. You go, boo, and they don't expect the boo to happen and so they laugh. Um, and I think what happens with comedy is that someone like Jim Carrey comes out and oh my gosh, you've never seen this before because you've never seen it before, it makes you laugh so hard and what you've seen it enough it can't make you laugh anymore it lacks the ability yeah to make you're you right laugh. like that's that the thing is being, now when jim Car- it's like not- it's jim carrey and we're like oh it's jim carrey yeah well and it, the same thing was with will ferrell with what will ferrell did it's the reason that that comedy just keeps changing for a while the uncomfortable humor really made you work like they really found they stretched that out for 10 years between the office and the hangover movies and stuff like the all all the ben stiller movies which the idea is just how uncomfortable can they make you and that'll make you laugh but mm-hmm. even now i think we're used to that so this is part of that that era i want to say that jim carrey had this enormous profound effect on me personally as a human being and as an actor like i said i was coming out of this era of my life where i was downtrodden i didn't know where i was i didn't know how to find myself and i discovered ace ventura right at the end of 1995 when i had made that first horror movie that i talked about when I was going through the dark breakup, I discovered that even I could, I had the ability to just go crazy. I could, I could do that. And very few people could actually do it as well as I could. Now I couldn't do what Jim Carrey did, but I could do it better than anyone else that I knew. Mm -hmm. And that got me roles in shows like the foreigner where I got to play Charlie. And it got me roles doing doing Pirelli in in Sweeney Todd, where everyone else is doing their thing. But I'm coming out doing the Jim Carrey thing where I'm just laying it all out there. And it worked. I kept getting cast in things based on this. I started doing this in my personal life, dealing with people like, being as crazy as I could. And it got me through the door socially. It also eventually got people really sick of me really fast. (laughs) Um, But at a time when I... When I had no inroads, when my confidence was shot, I I owe a debt of, without Jim Carrey, I'm not doing this show right now. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not directing anything. I'm not acting of it. The, the Jim Carrey was my way back in, my way to be recognized, to learn my way around a stage was because I was aping what he did. And then eventually I learned other skills that I was able to pull out of that. But Jim Carrey was essential to me personally at the time as a, as a person and as a performer. And this was part of it. Um, this guy, I, he still lights up the screen for me. And I don't think it's just me because my kids loved this. My kids adored this and especially him. Mm-hmm. So that's worth noting. So, so I think Jim Carrey, would you say that he is the highlight of the film? Yeah, probably. Uh, I think so. The uh, Certainly it's, if it's sort of like what we were talking about with the last show, the, um, you know, if a good fight is filler move, filler move, filler move, cool move, um, Jim Carrey is the metaphorical cool move of this film. I think That's the, true. Uh, they, like so my, they show scene, 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 and then they show him do something. Yeah, my overall thought as I was watching this, I, I was actually realizing I like the pacing in this film. It moves from scene to scene pretty quickly. Now, that strength is also one of the failings of the film in that this film just pretty much scratches the surface of everything, but never delves. Like, it gives you a very cut-and-paste primary colors textbook, uh, you know, Batman story, but does nothing risky or, you know, truly deep with any of it. Um, And so because of that, it's... I guess I'm sort of, I'm tangenting a bit here, but I was realizing this is a kind of Batman film that when I was eight or nine, I would have absolutely freaking loved. Um, the uh, Because it's it's very simple. It never goes deep. Uh, now, watching it, you know, yesterday, um, I probably would have been a lot more bored had I not, you know, been seeing some of the Jim Carrey moments that, you know, that really were, that they gave me, even if I didn't laugh out loud, they gave me like moments of delight to, or, you know, you know, to at the very least smile at. Yeah. Um, so if Jim Carrey's the highlight, let's talk about one of what I think are two disasters. You can tell me if there are more or fewer disasters. Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face, replacing Billy D. Williams' Two-Face, who would not go with this film. <laughs> I don't think that his Two-Face is what you would want here either. Um, if you hire Jim Carrey to do Jim Carrey, what did we hire Tommy Lee Jones to do here? Yeah, I was watching it because, this, because Tommy Lee Jones is very not Tommy Lee Jones in this. Yeah, he. I, I'm going to put it out there. Tommy Lee Jones in this role is an abject failure in every possible way. He has failed in absolutely everything that he could possibly be called on to do. I would be inclined what to are agree. Those I, would, I would be inclined to agree with you. However, I don't know if any of that is actually Tommy Lee Jones's fault. Well, because here, so so here, so here's my. Now you tell me. Like I'm sure there could be a lot of ways that this went down. But here's the thing: Tommy Lee Jones is a, you know, he's a pretty serious actor. He's got his chops. I mean, you know, we've seen him in The Fugitive and everything. Um, but this is not a serious film. This is a film where clearly the director is going for villains like, you know, Jim Carrey's Riddler. And Tommy Lee Jones is. I will say this for him: he th- like clearly in this film, Two Face is being in envisioned as a crazy, wacky, cartoonish villain. And I will say this, in that Tommy Lee Jones, he throws himself into that. Now, I don't feel like that works for Two-Face nearly as well as cartoonish works for the Riddler. Um, I think if you are going to go in a cartoonish way with Two-Face, you don't hire Tommy Lee Jones. 
Um, it's like if Jim Carrey, if you were if you were doing Pride and Prejudice and cast Jim Carrey as Mr. Darcy, I am willing to bet watching it, I would say, wow, Jim Carrey does a halfway decent job with this. This was completely the wrong role for him and they should have cast somebody else. But hey, I can appreciate that he's doing a halfway decent job playing the type of thing that they're asking him to do. That's what I see with Tommy Lee Jones. There's a million actors who I think could have done a better cartoonish Two-Face, but I at least saw him trying to do that and really going for it. I agree with you that he is really going for it. Let me give you some uh, some behind the scenes uh, dirt, if I can. This is from an interview with Jim Carrey, and I'll just read this quote. I'm reading this off of Cinema Blend. Uh Jim Carrey speaking, and he says, I was really looking forward to working with Tommy because he was a fantastic actor, and he still is. I love him. I mean, he's amazing. But he was a little crusty. I think he was just a little freaked out because Dumb and Dumber had come out on the same weekend as Cobb, and Cobb was his big swing for the fences, pardon the pun, Mm -hmm. and it didn't work out, and it freaked him out. And I think it made him... I walked into a restaurant the night before our big scene in the Riddler's Lair, and the maitre d' said, you're working with Tommy Lee Jones, aren't you? And I said, I am. And he said, he's in the back corner. I said, oh, great. I'll go say hello. And I went up to say hi, and the blood drained from his face in such a way that I realized I had become the face of his pain or something. And he got kind of shaking and hugged me and said, I hate you. I really don't like you. And I was like, wow. Okay, what's going on, man? And he said, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. He did not want to work with me at the point. And I said, well, you know, I think this part requires and the tone is kind of like childlike evil and I think you might be having some trouble getting there so I wish you the best um, and that is what's going on on the set that makes all the sense in the world um, I like I'm yep. looking at it I'm, just, I'm watching it and I'm just like I would be willing to bet that Tommy Lee Jones was pretty miserable doing this show or doing this film um, because it's not it's not his thing it's <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones did not get into acting to do bat to do films like Batman Forever. Um, I think that's very clear by his body of work. Um, and uh, you know, but which which is why I've got to still give him credit for um, he he's in it a hundred percent in this. Um, sometimes it's a little painful, but at least he's in it a hundred percent. Like he's not he's not phoning it in. Oh no, I don't think he's phoning it in. But I want to say this: when I say that he's failed in every possible way that he could fail. Let me tell you the three things that he is there to do, maybe four, Mm -hmm. and how he has failed in all those things. One, he is there to be the next Joker. He is there to be, Jim Carrey's there to be Jim Carrey. He's there to be the next Joker. He's there to be the next Jack Nicholson. And I can see that. I can see how he watched what Jack did. And he said, okay, I'm going to do that. And in doing that, he's the idea of bringing the darkness, the weirdness, you know, he fails to be the next Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. He's there to be Two-Face, the character from the comic book. Well, he utterly fails in every way to be that conflicted Two-Face that you would find in the comic book. He fails there. He's there because he's Tommy Lee Jones and he's there to be Tommy Lee Jones. That's why you hired him, to be Tommy Lee Jones. Well, he's not Tommy Lee Jones. True. He fails to bring the Tommy Lee Jones-ness of his character to him and that's what he does well. He does Tommy Lee Jones well. When he's in Lincoln, he's doing Tommy Lee Jones but he's doing it really well. Mm -hmm. And I had an acting teacher once who said, you know, don't shy away from that. There are two kinds of actors and some actors are like, and he listed Tommy Lee Jones and Al Pacino. He said, they do that really well. It's not that they're not acting. You believe them in the situation, but you're wondering what would happen if Tommy Lee Jones went through this? Yeah. And Tommy Lee Jones is really good to sh- show 
showing you what it's like to be Tommy Lee Jones dealing with Abraham Lincoln or what it would be like to be Tommy Lee Jones if Tommy Lee Jones was working for the U.S. Marshals. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not that he's not acting. He's absolutely, he's maybe the purest form of acting where he's Wait, like, you know what? I'm still me, but this is what it would be like if I was on a spaceship dealing with a virus. Yeah, you know, well, like it's, that's, it's essentially that's, you've got, so, I mean, it's, it's a much more common thing in American Hollywood because, especially because, like, I mean, the English, uh, you know, the English tradition of acting is you've got a, you've got a lot more people from the English tradition who can completely transform transform themselves. Like I remember someone once said the joke of Gary Oldman is Gary Oldman is so good of a transformative actor that you are in fact Gary Oldman and have been for six months. You just didn't realize it until now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like it's that sort of thing. But that and that works really well for the theater. For the theater, um, you know, having a character, you know, having an actor who can play a whole bunch of different roles and everything that's great because also in, in the theater you know you're 50 feet away from the person playing the role which means there's even in you know a really sincere uh drama you still need a little bit of stylization if for no other reason than just to project but then when you bring in the when you bring in the medium of film uh like my act my film acting teacher uh said the difference is when the camera is right on your face um like when i'm in the theater when i'm doing a and this is a gross oversimplification but if my character has if my character is afraid of something you know my first goal is to actually you know find some way to generate fear within myself um you know whether that's you know using a sense memory thing or whether that's you know using the magic if or all of these theater terms but i generate the you know ideally i want to be feeling fear but then the next step is to amplify that just a little bit um in order to get it sent to the back of the house that's watching. Um, whereas in film, you need to just be afraid. And if you do anything to show or amplify the emotion that you're having, if you think a thought and then in the slightest way show that you just had that thought, you are grossly overacting because the camera is right in your face and literally all you need to do is think it and feel it. Uh, and so but when you are dealing with that intimate medium, uh, it's a lot harder to do something full transformative and that style of no I'm just going to be the truest me I can be that's where that that medium really shines no I I agree that that and their actors can do that really well I just uh I lied last episode and I said I wasn't going to see Dark Phoenix. I did see that. I did end up seeing Dark Phoenix. And I would tell you, we'll talk about it one day. Uh, but Michael Fassbender is really good at that. Michael Fassbender is really good at just bringing this minimalist performance. And yet you absolutely mm-hmm. believe him. Yeah. That being said, it's possible to also swing for the for the fences and succeed. You know, Al Pacino is a great example. Sometimes the art of acting on film is finding ways to say your lines in interesting ways. Mm, Sometimes that's what it is. Um, and Jim Carrey certainly is doing that. So here's the other... The, the fourth thing. So he's not Two-Face and he's not Nicholson mm-hmm. and he's not Jones. So is he trying to out Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey? Is oh. he in the room going, you know what? This is my room. I'm going to do it. You know what? He thinks he can do it. Look what I can do. Um, whatever it is he's trying to do, whatever he was directed to do, whatever his goal is to do, he is failing to bring any of the things that I can imagine he would be asked to bring to this film. Mm-hmm. He is, it's, it's, it's a disaster of a performance. There's nothing about it. I mean, Two-Face in any general good is except- a waste. Two-Face, in, you know, in, both from an actor and just the character, Two-Face is a wasted character in this film. Well, and I would say this, it's, it's worth noting how at least what he's doing is 
kind of interesting until Jim Carrey shows up. And then you're like, oh, no, this is how you do it right. Yeah, you're totally right. Because whatever it is he's doing, like, it's, I, like, he's not that boring. But as soon as Jim Carrey shows up, everything he does is boring. I am yeah. not into anything that he's doing. And everything he does seems to just be like, ha, 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 God, have the good taste to die. And it's just not working mm-hmm. in any way. Hey, guess what else is kind of a disaster, <laughs> if I may? Um, what do you think? Of Nicole Kidman as Dr. Chase Meridian. Um, my first thought, this is, I, like, uh, um, she wasn't bad, but also, but it's sort of just like, I, you need to ask me, what do I wasn't think of, what, 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 what do I think of wasn't Chase? Wasn't she, though? No, but here's the thing. If you ask me what I think of Chase Meridian, I would think it is a completely insipid character in the guise of a psychoanalyst. Um, I don't think she was given anything really to work with. Um, I did not find her to be in any way a bad actress in the role. I just found that the role was just kind of boring. Um, if you're asking me if I thought she was bad or if she overacted, or no, I didn't notice any mistakes in her performance. I just thought it was a bad role. Now, I would say this. At the time, I didn't like Tommy Lee Jones, but I hated Nicole Kidman. I had hatred for Nicole Kidman about this film in the way that I had hatred for Halle Berry for playing Storm in the first X-Men, to the point where when Nicole Kidman came you know, did great work like into to die, and she did a movie called To Die For, which she's amazing in. Um, but it took me a long time to get back on her side after this film because of the terrible performance she did in this film. Well, what was it that um, what was it that was really bad for you? So I've seen more films since then. Now keep in mind, I was I was you know nineteen at the time that this came out, and it, and it left this impression on um, where I loved Jim Carrey. And I hated these two. What what I realize now, what she's trying to do is she's doing a femme fatale. She's doing a she is the 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 leggy blonde who walked into the office of the of the noir detective. Yeah, right? she's That's very film she's noir. Saying. Hey, hello, Bat. Oh, how does it make you feel? The way that she's breathy like this the whole time. And clearly what she's trying to do is like she, you know, if she were on Star Trek, she would be walking into, into Captain Picard's doing Dixon Hill, right? That's that that's the character that she's she's trying to do. She's 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 aping Jessica Rabbit, for lack of a better term. Um, I have to imagine that, that now looking back that this is a di- directorial choice um, because this is not she's not trying as opposed to Tommy Lee Jones who fails in every way I feel like she's giving this bad performance but she's giving what it is that she is coming there to give and she's making a choice which is not to pretend to be Jim Carrey she's like okay I am gonna do the the 1940s you know you the dame walks in on a dark and stormy night kind of kind of character that's what she's deciding to bring Mm -hmm. I think the character is so badly written like you said that I think it doesn't do her well and I think that she is not allowed to give anything more than a two-dimensional performance in, yeah. a, in a film full of two-dimensional performances. That because she is going so big with her two-dimensional performance, I think that I thought I didn't realize that she was deliberately giving a two-dimensional performance at the time. Mm-hmm. 
And so I think I judged her maybe unfairly for it. I don't think her performance is great, but like at the time I, I was angry. I was angry with her performance in the film. Mm-hmm. Now that I look back and I seen her body of work up to and including the Aquaman, which she was just in. Yeah. Um, I think that I think that this is her um, trying to do something and not doing well, but I don't think it's her fault. Mm-hmm. Agreed? Yeah, I think so. I think actually what you've just said kind of makes me want to, part of me now is just like, I would now actually like to see her in an actual well-written film noir, uh, you know, film noir sort of movie. Um, like if you imagine her, like I was like, oh, I bet Kim Basinger probably did it better in LA than, you know, Nicole Kidman would have in LA Confidential. But now I kind of want to see what Nicole Kidman would have done with that role too. Nicole Kidman, has been able to bring some very interesting performances to the screen. So I don't want to write her off as an actress. She's good. As is Tommy Lee Jones, by the way. Mm-hmm. His failure here does not mean that he's not a great actor. What he you've is got is a, a lot of actors who actor. were superstars at the time and I think they were just, ca- like Jack Nicholson when he was cast, everyone was like, oh my god, perfect Joker. When Danny DeVito was cast, everyone was like, oh my gosh, perfect Penguin. Even to a certain degree Jim Carrey, when he was cast, they were just like, oh yeah, I could totally see him as the Riddler. But then you get Tommy Lee Jones and Nicole yeah, he's Kidman and, and, you get Va- and you get Val Kilmer as well, because we'll, I'm sure we'll get to him. And it's just like, well, I guess these guys are famous at this point in time. So, yeah, I guess you'd want them in your movie. But it's not like the same no-brainer effect that a lot of the casting before this was. So let's go to, we'll do Val Kilmer last since we're kind of a guy. But what I'm really doing is I'm looking at the Batman Forever poster and just working my way up. Mm-hmm. Be- um, before we move on to other uh, characters, though, I do, because we are, yeah. I, I do want to give a shout out to one aspect of the film that was interesting um we are in the mid 90s uh we are going through a bit of a change in how fights are done on the screen uh where suddenly we are moving away from the big tough you know one or two punch fights of the 80s into well you know mortal Kombat came out that same summer we're starting to see a little bit more martial artsy stuff um you know which of course all culminates a couple years later when the matrix comes out at which changes you know fighting on the film you know fighting in film forever um as i was doing the plot to this like there's a lot more action sequences in this movie than in either of the other two um there's a lot of action set pieces and the fights last longer um like even Dick Grayson's fight against the Rave Gang, um, there was a you know that was extensive, uh, especially for the time. And I will say the fights they weren't great or inspired, but I did appreciate that they were actually starting to really flesh them out a little bit. Um, so you know, since then, of course, there have been way better fights. But I and again, like I said before, I have no recollection of seeing this film when it came out. But when I compare it in my mind to other films of the time i think the fights actually hold up compared to its predecessors yeah i mean if we want to take a break on the actors for a second i will i will jump in with you and say yes from an action perspective this is the first batman movie that is an action movie and they decided let's and we'll talk about schumacher when we get to the end um uh but this is a film when it comes to the action scenes it wanted to deliver you had you had stunts and you had you had weird shots and you had explosions and you had lasers and you had martial arts and you had you know you know, crazy action pieces and this was not the kind of movie where Batman walks through the snowy town and punches a guy in the face and there's a bomb on him that, that is, mm-hmm. it's not what they're going for at all this is this is 
you know, we are just going to go balls to the wall action. And I want to say, you know, this is the beginning of really using CGI in a big major way. Yeah. And while the CGI, I don't want to say it holds up um, because you can see it when it happens. But some of the shots are still pretty cool. The shot of Batman jumping off the building that they got like where the camera swings around him and stuff. Oh, yeah. It's neat. Um, There's there's neat stuff in there. They really are trying to adrenalize this film in a way that it hadn't been before um, to varying degrees of success. But I want to say that that it, you are absolutely right, and it's hard to not judge it by the time you say the Matrix, and I say preceding the Matrix, um, immediately preceding the Matrix by like two by two years, it's going to be Rumble in the Bronx, where um, where we first see Jackie Chan sort of erupting on the on the American scene, where suddenly action fight scenes are crazy and incredibly fast and different than we had seen them before. And yes, Mortal Kombat, you can't understate. How much that did to make you know fighting cool for us, um, in, uh, like on the side of the pond. So I I do applaud what they are doing from an action standpoint in this film. It's not good now, but for the time, yeah, it's 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 great. It's mm-hmm. it's for the time. It's it's really hitting those marks. So I'll give that to it. Um, jumping back in. To Chris O'Donnell, I can't fault Chris O'Donnell for what he's doing. He's so '90s cool, isn't he? he he's so he hates '90s. Authority, yeah. He's, he hates authority. He has a big old earring. Really you know, he's it. you know. Um, I like Chris O'Donnell. I think he's doing everything he can with this role. I mean, he's like 48 in this film, right? Is he not like yeah, I, like, like like 106 years old? So of course, obviously the you know the the tradition of having people in their 20s playing high schoolers is you know as old as Hollywood itself. Um, but yeah, even in this one, I was like, yeah, dude, I, I can't envision you as below the age of 20. Um, and you know, which would have been okay, except for the fact that they kind of make reference to the fact that he's young and hasn't even been with a girl yet a couple times. Like he's, I mean, Dick Grayson is supposed to be at the, you know, at the oldest, he's still in high school. Um, but yeah, yeah. no, I mean, he's, he's supposed to. He's supposed to be Peter Parker in Spider-Man: Homecoming. Yes, I mean, that's that's yes ideal, and the, it, it's worth noting that 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 Robin was going to be Marlon Wayans. Um, let's just call it out. Marlon Wayans was cast, um, and Marlon Wayans receives royalties from Batman Forever, huh? Because he was cast, and then they went a different way. Um, so I want to be clear that, that it's not his, Chris O'Donnell's fault. He had done a great job in Three Musketeers. He had done other great work and he's gone on to do a lot of TV work. That's really good. He's, I think he's on a CSI right now and he's, he's acclaimed for being a, a really solid actor mm-hmm. and he's solid in this film. He's fine. He's just fine. And in a film of disasters where we just talked about two disasters, he is doing exactly what you need him to do. But he's too old and he's not given a lot. If I had to hear him one more time say in a snotty tone, Bruce, go to a lot of biker bars, Bruce, <laughs> it just started to drive me nuts. Um, uh, but he's got the physicality. I believe him when he says he wants to. He's not doing a great job, but he's he's perfectly serviceable as Robin. And and I like I think that he would have worked well as like the Robin who's been doing it for a long time, like he the would, Robin about like, to become Nightwing. I, yeah, I was gonna say I'd be interested in seeing his Nightwing. Um, I mean, he's 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 pulling it off. I I <laughs> I think he's fine. Um, but let's talk about the character of Robin. 
was this the way to go? The the adversarial Robin, the Robin, the the '90s angsty Robin. Is this the way that you do it? Because it's worth noting that this film, once again, after Batman cracked the mold, and after after Batman cracked the mold, after Batman Returns was so dark you had to pull it from shelves. You now have a film that that steps right back into the shadow of Batman sixty six by introducing Robin, yeah. and it feels like the only way to do that is like this is the only way they can go. They can't have them be old chums, right? This mm-hmm. this is the way that audiences would not expect. Is this a right choice? I think it might be, so but I want to know your thoughts. So here is my thought with this: is that um, Robin is he is a great character for Batman in the sense that it works really well. I feel when there is a parent, there is almost a parent child relationship relationship in the sense that you know Robin Dick Grayson has a dark origin his family is killed in front of his eyes much like Bruce's family is killed in front of his eyes like it is that dark parallel that really works and I could see this film trying to set up the mentor student parent child uh, relationship and yes of course in that when you set up that relationship of course there is uh, you know pushing back against it or you know there's pushback from the younger one um, the problem is, is that, uh, you know, if Chris O'Donnell was too old for the Robin that he, that he was asked to play, um, Val Kilmer was too young for the Bruce Wayne that he was asked to play. Uh, you want a good example of a Batman, uh, you know, a Batman and protege relationship? Uh, look at Batman Beyond, where which is an animated series, but where you've got somebody you know who's like teenager and angsty, uh, but still going out and trying to be a hero, and then you've got like an older Bruce, like an actual mentor. Um, some of the lines in this film about, you know, when they're trying to get deep, when they're talking about like the, oh, you know, you're going down the path of revenge, you know, here's what happens after you kill that person, you know, which is, you know, a legit thing. It's a tried and true trope of, uh, of the older person who's been there saying, no, dude, trust me, revenge is not what you want. The problem is that they, based on their age, they practically looked like peers, um, to be honest, like Val Kilmer, 20 years older, I think I would have enjoyed a whole lot more because Val Kilmer is also a pretty good actor and I liked his stoicism. Um, I just thought he was too young for this particular Batman. Um, and I know I'm talking more about Batman yeah. than Robin here, but I feel like that to me was the big flaw with the relationship. Well, and I think that it's it's worth noting, right, that, that in the comics at this point, Dick Grayson has not been Robin for like nearly 20 years. I don't yeah. want to say 20, probably 15 years at this point. Um, you had had Jason Todd, who is Robin, who is famously killed, who is back now. Um, and then you had, at the time that this was going on, Tim Drake, who was a Robin who got his own series called Robin that was really well-received and really well-read. And I actually have, like, issues from it. And it was, he was, had this semi-adversarial with Batman where Batman didn't want him to be Robin, but he was like, well, I'm going to be Robin anyway. Um, and Batman also had an adversary relationship with Nightwing in the comics right now. So if this is the amalgam of those two characters, then the adversary relationship works and it does well to dispel the the gosh golly old chum from the 1966 Batman and Robin relationship. I get that. It's just that you're, you're right. The age differential is too much. Um, and I think it, you know, it's worth noting that Chris O'Donnell's career never recovered from this. I don't think Val Kilmer's career really did either. Yeah. Um, but let's Let's jump in. Okay, Batman. What, one Val final Kilmer. thing I'll say. Mike, one, uh, one final thing I'll say. Yeah. That one, the because uh, um, you were asking about, you know, does the adversarial relationship work? Um, you know, of course, it's a you know an old 
old adage that, oh, you know, drama comes from conflict. But here is a mistake that a million screenwriters and playwrights have made um, in that they conflate uh, conflict with just people being snipey to each other. Um, people being bratty and snipey to each other, people bickering. You know, just because there's two people who are bickering in dialogue, does that's not conflict on its own. That's just people being snipey, and that really can become quite irritating to the viewer unless there's real, uh, unless there's something really solid behind that. Um, and I feel like this is an example where this movie did not go as deep as it could have. What you've got is, like you say, it's the whole, you know, do you go to a lot of of biker bars, Bruce. That's a writer thinking, okay, well, I've got to show that, uh, you know, that Grayson doesn't like Bruce or that there's something here. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to have him throw in some just random insults, you know, as opposed to having stuff that actually really, in, instead of dialogue that actually comes from conflict, it's dialogue that's meant to show that there is conflict, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think I agree with you. I don't like, I don't know why, you know, I, he's just angsty because he's angsty. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's not Chris O'Donnell's fault. It's the fault mm -hmm. of the script. So, so I'll leave it at that. So Val Kilmer, um, I want to say this: Val Kilmer is was at this time also at the height of his powers. It's worth noting. First of all, I love Val Kilmer and Real, Real Genius. If you've not seen Real Genius, it's an '80s classic. See it now. It's great. Mm -hmm. And of course, everybody loved him as the cocky guy in Top Gun. But at the time, what he was being known for was Tombstone. He came oh, off yeah. of Tombstone in, in a career-defining uh, performance as Doc Holliday, where he was just phenomenally weird and dark, and, and what he was pulling off in this film. He makes that film. Actually, the film is a great film if you haven't seen it, but, but he does such a good job in that film. It's the reason he got cast as this Batman. Um, I feel, and this is, I've come to this conclusion, I kind of think he's terrible watching this. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't used to. I used to, there was a point when I first saw this in 1995 where I really liked Michael Keaton and I defended Michael Keaton for the weird, the, the performance he brought to Batman. But all of a sudden, this was a Batman who could be seen with his shirt off. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. he, yeah. was, he was in good shape and he could do the action and he looked like a hero. And with the cowl on, his lips look, looked enough like Michael Keaton's lips that you could kind of believe it. So if you wanted to take Keaton and make Keaton an action hero, you know, if you wanted to genetically modify Michael Keaton into someone who could be Batman, well, then it would be Val Kilmer, mm -hmm. um, especially after this. And I and I really, the, I think the only reason I liked him is because he pronounced opinion as opinion. <laughs> I think it's the only reason that I liked him in the film when I first saw it. Because when I watched it this time around, I got to say, he's, I don't get anything that he's doing. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't understand. He's, there's nothing. There's no, there's a phrase that I like. There's no there, there. Mm. I don't get his, I see what he's trying to do. If, if there's Tommy Lee Jones where I don't know what he's trying to do, I see perfectly what Val Kilmer is trying to do. He's just not getting there for me. And I'm kind of liking him as Batman until the last half of the movie where suddenly he's smiling or he has to go, Robin, come over here. Like it's just, he's not doing anything mm -hmm. for me at all and i'm he hoping doesn't, you feel he, different he lacks because i, I, well, I, I think love him but yeah no i think it's the i'm thinking you know like the stuff that i really like val kilmer and there's tombstone also you know
know, years later when he does Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is also a film absolutely oh, worth it seeing. Great. It is the film that it is the film that is the reason why Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man. Um, is that film? It's sure. it's an absolute must watch. Um, and Val Kilmer is great in that as you know an older gay detective, but also quirky character. Uh, like you said, um, you know Doc Holliday, dark but quirky. Um, and that does seem to work. Th- those seem to be the the things that Val Kilmer does best. He is not stoic, and he doesn't have the gravitas that I feel a Batman needs. Especially, you know, Bruce Wayne might not necessarily need a sense of gravitas. Batman sure as heck does. And you're right, in the moments where the Batman's trying, you know, when you need Batman to be scary, um, or just, you know, there needs to be an aura around him. And Michael Keaton actually pulled that off, like, and maybe part of that was the, you know, was the camera work and everything, but man, you know, Michael Keaton coming down through the window or just, you know, the the camera on his face in the cowl, it, there was a darkness to it. There's no darkness. It was worth noting, Michael Keaton did, Michael Keaton did Mr. Mom and Beetlejuice and stuff like that prior to, to Batman, but if you, if you see his, his roles afterward, constantly mm-hmm. as the villain. Yeah. And, and when he's the villain, he does it so well. He is terrifying, up to and including Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, the vulture, where he yeah. Is terrifying the and the reason he's terrifying is when he's calm you absolutely believe that he could at any moment snap yes 100 percent. and that's what michael keaton does really really well um yeah. it's one of many things that he does really really well um val Kilmer, none of that mm-hmm. no I, I i agree now um, actually now now that we're talking about it i think i'm actually liking his performance less in it yeah it's it's and and i don't i don't want to fault him because i think that we're i mean let, let's get to it then if, if this is how we feel about the cast, about the performances. Val Kilmer is a talented actor um, who who is like has done amazing work. Chris O'Donnell is a is a workman's actor. He's out there and he he does Chris O'Donnell, but he he mm-hmm. does it. You know, he, does it he goes day in day out and does good work on TV. You know, Nicole Kidwin has been nominated for Academy Award and maybe I think one Tommy Lee Jones also Jim Carrey is a superstar so how do we watch this movie with all these people and we feel like oh it just doesn't work and we gotta put it I'm sorry Joel you've done good work before it lays at the feet of Joel Schumacher who I it's a shame when I can say this I get what he was going for I really do Mm-hmm. I watched the film and I completely understand what he was trying to achieve. I kind of dig the color palette. Bright. Yeah, like it was meant to yeah, be was... a very bright answer to the super dark. Like if Batman Returns was, you know, practically a black and white film, Batman Forever, the entire film could have taken place at a rave. It's so colorful. But it's colorful, but it's dark because a rave happens at night. Yes. So it's really, it's 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 a neon sign. Like it's, 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 it's the, the darkness is surrounded by all this weird brightness. I get what Mm -hmm. he's doing, but it's all the word that I'm going for here. And I'll say it more next week, but the word is garish. It Mm. ends up being uh, Jim, Jim Carrey. I'm digging because he's Jim Carrey and I like to see him doing Jim Carrey. Everything else is loud and, and in your face and everything's on the surface and there's no depth to any of it. Yep. And, and even the music, you know, the, the, the old music, da, 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 is the old Batman thing. But this is, this is the new Batman thing. Da, 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 you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, it's an actual sound in the music and it's just, 
it, it's loud and it's it's I understand what it's trying to do. It's not that I don't get it, but it's it's not working for me, especially now. Mm-hmm. And again, I have to take it all with a, the grain of salt that we've had. We've had the MCU that cracked the code to the point where sometimes if there's a criticism to be lobbied to the MCU is that the tone is so much the same that there's a sameness to all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see um, that. Uh, but it, it it's a real shame because there's so much talent working and any given moment could maybe be neat. Um, but the fact that the guys, when they get shot, go, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fact that you have the same going, hey, it's Batman! Like, it's just... It's boiling acid. It's just all of well, it is it's, just. I, I like, think essentially what it is. It is. I, I said it before. Uh, it it is the kind of Batman that I absolutely would have loved when I was eight years old. Yeah, and I have an eight year old, and guess what? He loved it. <laughs> he really did. I. My theory like, is proven. I happened. I I happened to live in a house with an eight year old. He just turned eight, just like two days ago, and and yeah. Um, I will say this. There is... So Jim Carrey did two Ace Ventura movies. One's Ace Ventura Pet Detective and one is Ace Ventura When Nature Calls. Mm -hmm. And I call out Ace Ventura When Nature Calls as an important... You could do a dissertation on that film about why it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. What makes Ace great in the first one? Because the first Ace Ventura film is to this day an astoundingly funny film. Mm -hmm. I dare you, have you not seen it, to try and watch the first five minutes of that film without welling up with tears, it's so funny. Because it's with him with him in the UPS box. Here's what the first Ace Ventura film has going for it. Everyone else in the film is normal. So when Ace does something weird, there is a cutaway shot to, to someone looking person. at him like, what the hell are you mm. doing? And it makes the film work. Courtney Cox is perfect in the role because everything that he does, she is flabbergasted by. Or if mm-hmm. he's in a group room full of people, everyone's looking at it, like there, there's a great scene where he steps out like of a bathroom and goes, do not go in there. And every, it's at a fancy party and everyone's kind of looking at him like, what is wrong with this guy? Mm-hmm. But you get to Ace Ventura 2 and everyone's a cartoon. The British people are all super British. <laughs> and the Africans he's working with are downright offensive in their in their portrayal. Um, it is it is everyone is a cartoon character in that film. And by doing that, you take what Jim Carrey does and you pull it down and you make it you make it not as funny because you don't mm. have the cutaway. Yeah. You don't have the fish out of water, which makes it so funny. Now Jim works in this film because where Jim exists is is he's writing he's like the guitar solo on top of the metal song yeah. where he's writing the crest of everything but what he's making fun of is still Batman. He's what he's making fun of is the darkness. He's very clever where he goes that's never going to heal if you don't stop picking. It's a great line, but it's making fun of the darker end edge of Two-Face. When Two-Face is being crazy, Jim Carrey's not acknowledging that. All he's making fun of is the darkness. It's why he shines. Yeah. The rest of the film, with everything being loud and shouted all the time, by the end, you know, the rusted metal joke notwithstanding, which was funny at the time, it doesn't play well now. Um, yes. Although I want to, sorry, go ahead, finish your thought, because I actually want to touch really briefly no, no, on that no, rusted please, metal. Please, please. What, so I, he, I yes, I agree with you. The holy rusted metal Batman joke, that does not play well now. However, I think it's important to note in that it is a bit of a milestone 
in that I think it is one of the first times in superhero films or something that we have the the homage, the not something that is both homage and subversion. The nod to the fans, the nod to we know our source material, but here's something clever. It it's kind of along the lines of in the first X-Men, the uh, you know, what did you expect? Yellow spandex. Um it's and it's funnier than that. I will say yeah, it's Oh, it's, and it's much funnier moment. than it's, that. It's it, actually fun, like the um, it doesn't play well now because the best, you know, we've reached the point now where if you're going to do a subversive homage, um, or actually if you're going to do an homage, don't try to subvert. You, there's a difference between a subversive homage and lampshading. Lampshading is where you just deliberately make fun of something and kind of point, the goal is to point at it and say, isn't that kind of silly? Um, the homages that work are the ones that say, oh yeah, it's quirky, but it still keeps the heart of it. Um, and that's why that joke wouldn't fly in one of today's films. But certainly at the time, as a fan of the original Batman, there was a sense of, oh, they just threw in an Easter egg. They just, they just gave us something that says, hey, you know, and... On, and you wouldn't have gotten that joke if you hadn't watched the previous Batmans. Like it's the, that's the best thing about those Easter eggs is they make you feel special. And I feel like that that joke is one of the earliest memories I have of an Easter egg in a superhero film like that. No, I like that. I and I and I agree with you. I think that it's at the time it was funny. Um, I will say that the best humor is the humor that you know it's coming and you laugh anyway. Like, I don't mm-hmm. care how many times you see Ghostbusters when they say, where do these stairs go? They go up. I still laugh now, mm-hmm. even though I know the joke's coming. Yeah. And I think this is not a joke that plays that well. Um, I want to ask you real quick about the script, about the plot that you outlined, because there's one major difference in this. This is a sci-fi film, among yeah. everything else that it is. Mm-hmm. Yes. And from this point forward, it is always a sci-fi film which is really worth noting. Maybe maybe The Dark Knight Rises does not become a sci-fi film as much, but certainly this is. Certainly Batman and Robin is. Certainly Mask of the Phantasm is, Mask of the Phantasm is when we do it. The Return mm-hmm. of the Joker, Batman Beyond movie, which we're going to do eventually, is All of also Batman Beyond sci-fi is sci-fi, film. yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the, you, Batman Begins has the plot of the, the gas that's going to come out and scare everyone. By the time you get to The Dark Knight, the most gangster of the the most like serious of all the films by the end you've got 3d imaging happening from all the cell phones as they're going around at the end of the film playing out like a video game mm-hmm. from this point forward batman is not a guy in a suit fighting I, criminals i would say that i, I would agree from with you this certainly point forward, everything up up until batman begins um batman begins and that trilogy to me is not necessarily any more sci-fi in feel than the original batman uh that we just reviewed. i will say this because the original batman like they're, the, they're wait, still wait till we get to the dark knight though when we get to the Dark Knight and suddenly he's invading the building with a 3D view in his in his like goggles because he's taking like the 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 sonar from all the cell phones that he can see, like it's there's still the sci-fi element to it at the end. Well, it's and I mean that's certainly there, there, to, there's a technical like there's there's certainly a tactical aspect of that, but it's tactical gadgetry, and of course it's tactical gadgetry that's not available in the real life. But in the same way that uh, you know that the Batmobile that you know like the Batmobile having remote controlled shields in the first film was also sort of yeah but 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 I but I definitely take your what you're saying and uh, up and up until that point um, of you know mask of the phantasm and certainly into Batman beyond 
Um, and gosh, certainly this film. But this film feels like it could just as easily be set in twenty nine in uh, in twenty ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's. I think that well, frankly, I think that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say when we get to the Dark Knight uh, trilogy, I will say that that end part, while while certainly adrenalizing in the action, is my least favorite part of the whole film. Um, you know, I want Batman to be a guy in a cape fighting crime in a city. It should be what it is. And when it gets like this, it's just too too much. Um, it's possible to go I want too to, far. Again, with the I've talked. I want to talk. You know, I've talked about how much I hate the sco- score by Elliot Goldenthal. It's abysmal. It's terrible. It, it destroys everything I liked about Batman music. Keep in mind, I said I owned the Batman Return score. This is awful. But I did own the Batman Forever soundtrack album, which oh, is pretty good. Oh, that's Kiss like, from a Rose like is one of the most iconic up the romance songs of the 90s. Um, uh, he, uh, Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me by U2 oh, yeah. is on this album. Uh, but that's what the credits are under. You, have, I forget who did the song The Riddler, but I can quote it for you, like chapter and verse. I owned this album and I played it a lot. This was a, ki- this was a time uh, when, when there were killer soundtrack albums. When we did the Crow review, we didn't talk about that album. It's a great album. Um, movie soundtrack albums were a big thing, and this, this album is just it's one of the first cds that i played till it scratched and then bought a second one of Mm -hmm. this is a great example of mid-90s sort of alt rock and i i love it it's a great great album so i want to i want to give that the shout out so on a scale of what do i even scale this on on a scale of of one to five Alternate Vibra- meals oh, I, I being had this offered one. to you by Drew Barrymore and Debbie Mazar. I know what you know, on a scale of people- one to five surprising Drew Barrymore cameos that I'm just like, oh, that's right, she was in this. Um, uh, what do you rate Batman Forever, sir? Ah, man. Um, before this podcast, I was thinking somewhere around. So I'm inevitably, as I'm watching it last night, comparing it to Batman Returns, which I watched last week. Um, and thinking, obviously, very, very different films. I'm actually feeling like the, you know, as I'm watching, I'm like, oh, I feel like the pacing is actually better in Batman Forever. Um, I, I certainly appreciate that there's more action going on. Um, so initially I'm thinking, oh man, somewhere between a 3 and a 3.5. Um, but as we're talking things through with it, yes, the pacing is solid. Um, and I like the, I like the colors. I like the vibrancy. I appreciate what he's trying to do with it. Um, but here's the thing, this film, you know, and certainly Jim Carrey does have some nice moments to it, but if you want good Jim Carrey, you don't go to this film, you go to other Jim Carrey films. Um, this film is at its best points, solid, like it never shines. And there's a few points where it just flat out fails. Um, the soundtrack is not good. The, um, I liked the action. Um, I still feel the pacing was better. I feel like it's a more solid Batman story than Batman Returns is. Um, it's certainly a safer way of telling Batman than Batman Returns. Um, and again, for an eight-year-old, this film would be great. Um, but I actually definitely need to give Batman Returns its credit in that it takes risks. It does weird stuff. And even when the weird stuff doesn't work for me, 
at least it's interesting. There's a, it's like you said last time, there's a rewatchability factory to Batman Returns in that there's more stuff to mine even from the parts that I don't like in it. There's, I have no desire to go and watch this one again. Um, and so because of that, I think I'm going to give it a 2.5. So this was the best Batman mo- movie ever. The best movie of the summer, according to young 19-year-old Justin. They finally gave you everything you wanted. It gave me, and, and it's a film, it really does try to give me everything mm-hmm. I wanted all the time at every moment in the film. Yes. I'm including a Batman butt shot, which if you think you're not going to get another one, wait till next week. <laughs> um, Plus the I bat nips. I think that this, uh, uh, we didn't even talk about the bat nipples, which were dumb. Um, I get what the art director of the film was going for. I get that Joel Schumacher had an idea in mind that he wanted to make Batman fun. I rated Batman Forever as high as I did as a 4.25 and as a personal 5 for me. You mean Batman Returns. And the thing about this film, I want I want to give this film this prop. This was this will probably be the favorite Batman film of my 8-year-old. This is my my almost 13-year-old also really dug what this film was doing. This film delivered to them in a way that the other Batman, first movie Batman, didn't. And I wouldn't even show them Batman Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the most... And next week, I think, is just too silly. I think of the original Batman movies, and maybe of every Batman movie ever made, this may be the most accessible for the 8 to 13 age range, Totes is agree. this film. I can't, I can't think of another one that that gives you a batman that is live action that feels grown up enough mm-hmm. you know there's a little bit of sexiness and there's a little bit of there's the the action is is you know people are actually dying and killing and shooting with bullets so it's a, enough of like a grown up action film but it's accessible enough to younger kids that i think that this is this is the perfect for that age range so I will start it like I did last time. I'm going to start this one at a solid 3.5. Really? For being able to do well, that's where I'm starting. Oh, oh for I being see. able to do being able to do that. The problem is, ladies and gentlemen, that not only I but also I would assume our podcast listeners are not between the ages of eight and thirteen. If you are, feel free to keep listening. Never listen to Trek Off. Um, <laughs> This is um, uh, for those of us who are above the age of 13. Once you get to 14, um, I think that probably Batman Begins is better for you. And once you get to 15, probably the original Batman and the Dark Knight is better for you. Certainly Batman v Superman is better for you. And Justice League is 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 probably better for you, too. Um, once you get to 17 or 18, you're just watching the first two Batman movies of this thing, and you're really just watching the Dark Knight trilogy and sticking with the current Justice League stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that once you get into your 20s, mid-20s, higher, unless you're a Jim Carrey fan, there's absolutely nothing in this film for you. Yes. it is. It, you know, if Batman and Robin is the disaster that we're going to talk about, and even that is a movie you can hate watch, you can't even really hate watch this. Yeah. There's no, there's no reason reason to watch this film there's not screaming train wrecks yeah screaming train wrecks have their own entertainment factor but movies that are just not good yeah jim carrey is great and it's not even this is not good it's just like there's so much batman out there now this is there's no it's it's completely and utterly unexceptional with the exception of the only exceptional part of it is jim carrey Mm -hmm. um and in his repertoire it's not the best either yeah i mean he's great he's great in it 
Um, the art direction's interesting. The fighting is pretty good. And if you're a parent looking to show a Batman film to your kids, this is the one to go to. This yeah. is I was excited to show this to my kids. And if you are a parent like me and you've got that that five years between eight and thirteen, this is the Batman movie to show them. They, they'll love it. Um, I don't. Uh, I'm gonna put this at a. God, I'll put it at two point five two because it's it's in. It's inoffensive, with the exception of of Tommy Lee Jones's abysmal abysmal performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 a two point five middle of the road, near the bottom of the road. There's there's no reason to watch Batman for. I don't know that I'll ever watch this movie again. Yeah. Maybe I I don't know. I don't know that I ever will. This might be the last time I've watched the greatest Batman movie ever made, according to me in nineteen ninety five. So hey Van, if you're listening, sorry, I'm sorry for this being the last thing I said to you before you went off on your mission. Um, I'm glad that you sought more spiritual uh, pursuits than the one that I gave you. Um, but I told mm-hmm. you to go see this. There's a part of me that fears that you went immediately after I saw, right before getting on the plane. Sorry, mom and dad. Justin said this was the thing to leave him with, and darn it, my friendship with him is worth it. I'm so sorry if this is what you went to go see. You should have told um, him to go see the crow. The, not yeah, go. Oh yeah, sure. That's a great idea. Have a great. <laughs> Have a great spiritual Have a great journey. Mormon mission. Uh, Go see the crow. Uh, um, uh, so that's it for Batman Forever. Next week, next time, uh, the the film that nearly single handedly murdered the superhero genre. I am so excited. The film that for decided. This to, I have not. I have never seen this film before. I am so excited. Like, oh, I'm. This is going to be great. If you're wondering what happens when a Batman movie has first listed first cast member Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> That's what you get next. It's the first name on the on the poster, Arnold Schwarzenegger showing up. If you thought that Val Kilmer didn't bring any darkness to Batman, what happens when you bring ER era George Clooney? Huh? <laughs> if you wondered whether or not Batman has, dare I say, a bat credit card, <laughs> you will find out next week when we listen to our review of Batman and Robin. Um, I thank you for joining us on this on this bat journey. Uh, Arthur, I apologize in advance, my friend. No, this is going to be amazing. Are you kidding? I <laughs> Like I said, keep in mind, I'm still looking forward to the day when we review that original 1980s Super, <laughs> Supergirl. So, you know. Oh, boy, we do have to do that, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we do. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we do. It's... it's it's gonna ha- it's gonna have to be part of the Superman rep- retrospective because it is in that universe. Mm-hmm. Um, coming up, so you know, I did see Dark Phoenix. I lied to you all. I said, "Oh, I'm never gonna see it." And then, literally last night, my my mother came into town unexpectedly, and she was like, "Hey, you guys go out on a date." And I was like, "Hey, let's go do- see Dark Phoenix." My short review of Dark Phoenix is: it is not the train wreck, despite the fact that there is a literal train wreck in the movie. It is not the train wreck everyone said it's not great but it's not you know it doesn't completely crap the bed mm-hmm. so um that's my short review we'll get to it eventually um and then coming up very very soon when this is done after we do this we're going to be a couple weeks late on this but coming up next is going to be spider-man homecoming and uh and spider-man far from home uh which we're again we're going to be a couple weeks late getting those in but those are coming big summer lot still going on so thank you for listening to totally super but for now yes my name is justin and my name is arthur and hey there true believers riddle me this that's it oh yeah no, right. no riddle just like this movie no just, riddle yeah <laughs> there's no riddle, riddle me this <laughs> 
Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Enlight Entertainment. 